Hello and welcome. This is the first podcast I'm doing of the year. It'll probably go out in a couple of weeks, so hopefully I'm not too rusty and neither is Mike. Um, but yeah, I'm joined by Mike James today, who is the endurance physio. So I've seen quite a lot of your stuff, Mike, from various different um, events and so on. And I know we, we bumped into each other at Therapy Expo recently. Um, but no, I really appreciate your time and I'm looking forward to digging in a bit about your past my question of where you're from is going to be pretty obvious when you start speaking, but I will start with that one. So, whereabouts are you from originally? Yeah, hi. Thanks for thanks for the um, the, in, the intro, the welcome, and happy new year to everyone. Um, I am from South Wales. I'm a Swansea boy originally. The accent did fade for a long time because of where I was moving and living. It's come back quite strongly in the last four or five years. Mm. So what's it like, actually, because we, we were just talking before we started recording, but now you're living near a Cardiff. What I always hear about the rivalry between Swansea and Cardiff, but are you, do you experience any of that? What are your views on that? Yeah, absolutely. I grew up um, as a Swansea City fan and um, tribal was probably the, the, the softest word you could use for it. You know, it was and a lot of them were stories. There was always stories of violence and, and stuff that had happened after the games, which you never really saw too much of, but it was um, it was a little bit uh, tasty. What's been interesting in the last 10 years is it seems to have mellowed a little bit with the rise of the Welsh national team. As, as we've developed this stronger together, one nation, red wall sort of philosophy, um, I'm sure the staunch stalwart Swansea Cardiff fans wouldn't say the same. Um, and I'm sure when it's Championship Derby Day, they don't say the same. But um, it definitely seems to have mellowed a little over the years. Um, as has the rugby. Rugby's done the same. It's all sort of... It's a different generation growing up. And then people sort of aren't, aren't as tribal or heart on their sleeve as, as they once were, perhaps. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, like Swansea and Cardiff, like they had a really successful period in their own right, didn't they? And been in the Premier League and so on. So, like, where are, like, do you have to get to see Swansea much or? No. So I, I say I grew up a Swansea fan, but I'm a Spurs fan at heart. Um, so whenever time was available to travel, growing up, I watched a little bit. But um, as I'm sure we'll come on to, my my background was as a footballer for a long time and I, I was playing most of the time when they were playing so I didn't um, didn't get to see many games if I could I'd travel to the big smoke to see to the mighty Spurs um, now we're back it's interesting because we live about 10 minutes outside Cardiff so um, I'm literally a 15 minute drive from Cardiff City Stadium and it feels rude almost not to take advantage of being so close. We're two young sons, both football mad. So um, any chance we get to go along, we we keep the Swansea bit quiet. We sit in the Cardiff end um, and we cheer them on. They're Welsh at the end of the day, so we cheer them on. Um, and we get we pretty much get to every Welsh game as well. So we are quite lucky to to be able to get nearby. And I do remember the old stadiums, the Vetch and Ninian Park and ramshackled is an understatement so just to go into these new venues and see the, the stadium that's available for some of these clubs today is is eye-opening for me the kids don't know any different they think it's always been that good but um but yeah things have evolved yeah no definitely and even like for the like i loved watching like the welsh team over the last six years or so like obviously with bale ramsey and then those players but like i remember watching the turkey game in the euros last summer and it was just absolutely brilliant and that's something 
just resonates with like the whether it's Welsh or Irish or Scottish. I just think that there is a slightly different thing of that sort of maybe maybe because England are more expected. They've got some of the more well-known players and so on. But no, I've, I've loved watching Wales. So uh, although they probably Welsh people probably hate me saying that because they want you know they just maybe dislike uh, some of the English. But anyway, that's uh, that's for a different conversation. Um, so getting back to you then, yeah. So you talked about how you got involved in this area then. So what was like your first step in in your journey into this career? So my first step was, um, and I always say this, was to be a failed footballer. I I chased the football dream right up until my late teens, came pretty close, um, and realised that what is now the academy was a YTS scheme back in the day for me. And um, it wasn't anywhere as developed or evolved as it is these days. So when that dream finished, it was, oh, crap, what am I going to do now? And... Um, I was still living back home in Swansea. Fitness had always been my big thing. That's what I always enjoyed. So I became personal trainer. That was my first step. Um, I started my own business at sort of 18, 19 at home. It was very much working out of a um, commercial gym, but as my own entity as a personal trainer. Did that for a couple of years. And by pure coincidence, um, one of my clients was a chef in the Air Force who was working in the local careers office, Main City High Street, taking that little sabbatical out of mainstream military to, to work there. And I um, oh, just bent my ear from day one. You should join the RAF. You should be a physical training instructor. And never even heard of it. It wasn't from a military family. wasn't any inclination on joining the military. But suddenly there was a job that you got paid to run around and shout to people and do exercise all at the same time. So, um, so mid-90s I joined the RAF as a physical training instructor and probably spent over a decade just working in fitness fitness exercise group coaching individual coaching and the nature of the career was that to progress your career you needed to have a specialty and there was three options still is to the day there's three options you can throw people out of airplanes you can climb up mountains and drag people behind you or you can go into rehab and you can become what they call an exercise rehab instructor um, which basically is on a unit or a, or a mainstream unit where you treat rehab and return people to fitness who you probably previous broke in, in a previous role as, as a fitness instructor. And um, and it certainly wasn't, there's a lot of people in my former life who take the one that's, I don't really want any of them, that's the one that's the best for promotion right now, or that's the one because it's near my partner or her family or whatever. For me, it was only ever, all I ever wanted to do was the rehab side. I'd, I'd already started getting into some of the football rehab stuff that was on offer at the time. So um, early 2000s, we went into rehab. Um, the military has always been fantastic at supporting you academically if you had the desire to do so. So by this point, early 2000s, they paid for me to do um, a sports science degree. They paid for me to do a strength conditioning degree which was fantastic at the time because I was earning a wage. I was a single young bloke. I had no other commitments. I always think it was the sensible way to study rather than going as, as, a, as a teenager and getting up to my eyeballs in debt. Um, so after the rehab journey started then and I was working in rehab, the obvious choice was a sports rehab degree that the military offered. Um, and that would have been mid-noughties, something like that, late-noughties we did that. Um, and then I got to about 2010, 2011, uh, was married, 
was thinking about starting a family, was thinking about that long-term picture. Where where am I going to end up here? I knew that the military had done I'd done full circle on the career, so it was only to do the same job over and over again. I've been fortunate. I've been fortunate for me, but unfortunate for them, that I was at a place called Headley Court for five years, right at the peak of Iraq and Afghanistan. So from a professional point of view, there was never a better time to increase your skill set, develop your skills. It was a horrible time to have been there because of the nature of what was coming in. And in some ways, I wish we'd never had to, to do those things. But um, it did make me top out a little bit to the point of what do I do now? I don't, I don't know what I want to do. Um, like I'd said, I, when I, I'd never even thought of joining the military. And even when I signed on the dotted line to do a 20-year, 22-year career, I didn't know if I was going to do two months, two years or 22 years. I just I play it by ear and see how it goes. So I'd started at that point to get this. What's the big picture? Here? I don't think I want to be in here forever. I've seen some of my predecessors coast the last 15 years of their career, leave at 55, not a pension they can retire with and yet sit there going, well, what do I do now? Because I'm still young and I need to work. So um, mid 30s to me was right. OK, it's time to get out here. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, to jump ship when they were trying to reduce numbers. So I managed to take redundancy. That fortunately enabled me to live and fund me to go back to uni to do a master's in physio. So um, I did that. And then pretty much after that, then I spent the last 10, 12 years either floating around in private healthcare, working for other people, worked in the NHS for a little bit, worked in occupational health, spent year working for Amazon, bizarrely, down in one of their depots. Um, but all along, had this little side business of my own, the endurance physio. My um, my background is endurance sports. I'm an endurance athlete. And I've always been, whether it's a coach or a therapist or an athlete myself, in and around the various forms of endurance sports. So six, seven years ago, it was time to, right, let's double down on this. Let's do all the stuff most of us do. Let's get a logo. Let's make myself a limited company. And let's try this thing properly. Um, and that's what it's been pretty much for the last four years. Since we moved, a lot of it was put on ice. I know we're moving back to Wales. Let's not bother getting a clinic or a location or, or go crazy with it now because everything's going to need to be moved. So four and a half, five years ago, we came back home um, and set up in earnest. And and it's the best move I ever made because my, my days are so diverse. No day is the same for me. I have a... I have a clinical role. I have a mentoring role with some young therapists locally. I teach both to therapists and athletes. Um, I speak at the conferences, as, as, as you know, from Therapy Expo. And um, and I think I'm, I'm a lot of people would say living the dream for their careers. But I genuinely feel to have sole ownership of where I'm taking my day to be able to be flexible around the kids, which is, you know, both of them are off. They're supposed to have been back in school tomorrow, but they've both decided to catch COVID over Christmas. So um, so they're off till Monday. That would have been a nightmare before trying to rejig with a boss, you know, oh, look, I can't come in for two days and and all of this sort of stuff. So um, so yeah, that's that's where I'm at. That's a that's a whistle stop tour through what 27, 28 years now. Right, so um, you went into the, the, the military then. So did you, so you say you're not entirely sure where it was going to go, but were you based in Headley Court the entire time or did you move no, around? No, no. No, so um, a large chunk of my rehab time was Headley Court. Yeah. Um, 
pretty much was based everywhere in the UK and overseas, did all the, the famous places people would put a pin on on the map. Um, and I, in the early part of my career, it probably was, I, I was young, I was single. Uh, one of the things I wanted to exploit was to see the world or as much of it as I could. So um, I jumped at opportunities to travel and live in different places. So I think at one point I'd been to about nine different camps in about six years posting, which um, which was great for me, but not great for the career because there was none of that sort of consolidation and stability. Um, but when I went into rehab, a bit like a footballer only wanting to play in the Premier League, there was other great jobs around. But to be honest, the only place it was happening was was Headley Court. Right. So, um, so I ended up going there for a, a traditional tour, a traditional posting. And as soon as the opportunity came to extend and extend again, I, I, I just did it. In the end, I had to leave on a promotion um, because there literally was no job there for me. And within probably a month of leaving, I just went, everything's downhill from here. This, that place was so good. Even if I now find another way to work back up the ladder and get back there in a different role, it's never quite going to be the same. And those few years in between are going to be hard and tough for me to, to struggle through. So um, so I sort of topped out a little bit. Summited Everest in some ways early. Mm. And I always felt then yeah, it's time to time to move on. Yeah, I mean, Headley Court is just what it was an incredible site, wasn't it? Like we, I went to a couple of conferences there and just the facility was like donated, wasn't it? Or it was loaned for a period of time. Yeah, it was, it was really mythical. Nobody really knew the full ins and outs. The, I think the actual story was that um, it was leased from some landowner for about a pound a year. Now, if, if, you'd, if you've never been there, it's um, like a Downton Abbey type estate with all these lovely lush grounds and these wonderful mazes and, and scenery right in the heartland of Surrey. Um, but what was never expanded on was I think it was like a pound to rent to, to have the space, but you were in charge of all the upkeep of the grounds and everything else. So, so it came at a pretty penny in the end, and that was almost the reason why they ended up moving north a few years ago was the upkeep of the place and the the limit. As you know, we needed to grow the place; it needed to expand, and there were certain caveats and restrictions on what we could and couldn't do on the land itself. So to move north right up to Yorkshire and build a purpose-built place, which they did in the end, um, was, was the right move. But um, the, I think it holds a special place in anyone who ever worked there's heart. And as much as most patients would have never wanted to be there, they, they probably have the same feelings. It was, for a long time, it's different now, but for a long time, it was the only inpatient residential rehab set up in the military. And probably one of the few in, in, in the UK per se. Um, and to have a patient under your care for three solid weeks was so, you know, you you started to believe that you were a far better therapist than you were because it was the conditions and the facility and the thing that you had at your, at your um, fingertips that, you know, they were away from all the distractions of work and family and other things. And most of them were doing circa five hours of exercise rehab a day. And then they were having double day physio sessions, prosthetists on camp if they needed them, psychologists, social workers. It was um, it was a phenomenal beast to be part of, all led by sports meds or uh, rheumatology consultants who um, were specialists in rehab as well. So so it was um, it was it was 
fantastic. And I know that a lot of professional sports medical setups now are either led by former consultants and bosses from Edley Court or have copied that model and moved forward from, from there themselves. Yeah, well, I was chatting with uh, Graham Smith and he was saying that that's the model really for the, for the modern day, certainly football training facilities based on Headley Court and that sort of setup of managing a centre where people would come in and stay for a long period. But I remember like I, I was playing football and one of the guys was in the RAF and so he, you know, he would play as and when he could, but he was basically a professional footballer. Like he'd be going off representing the RAF going for physio and it was just like wow that sounds an incredible like they really looked after the people that represented them yeah it's changed a little now i was fortunate enough to to have a similar experience through both uh football same with the football i played RAF football and work wouldn't see me monday to wednesday from probably october to march just was away all the time um same when i ended up going into the triathlon world i had a lot of time off to to train and compete there um but that was part of where some of the some of the benefits started to wane when they had this reduction in numbers when they when they decided in the early 2000s to be a, a more adaptable agile smaller force then you know i remember days where i would work in a gym where there was six members of staff and on our busiest day we probably needed three so we had a real flex in the system to be able to go, yeah, if you want to go skiing for a week in Sweden, off you go. If you want to run a climbing exped in North Wales, off you go. Um, if you, um, I remember working in one where the two, two guys that I worked with were both summer track athletes and I was the winter sports footballer. So, you know, I cover you in the summer, you cover me in the winter, happy days. But towards the end, I finished off in Bryce Norton and I remember there, there was pretty much three of us and we could have done with six. And if I'd wanted half a day off for something or other, then I probably would have needed to work three or four lunch times, stayed late one evening. And, and as much as that's normal life for most people, at the time when you've had one and that's the other, you suddenly go, ah, uh, you know, all the things that make up for the stresses and strains of being in the military, then now they're starting to fade away. I think yeah. rugby now, the um, sorry, army, army rugby, army boxing is probably the two strongholds where that life still exists. You're pretty much taken out of work and you are a full-time athlete. Um, I know I know the RAF now have a policy where I think when, when I was in, if you were a national level athlete, you had full-time training status. I think now you need to be Olympic level. So, and there's not many of them floating about. So, yeah. um, so it's all changed for the right of the Air Force, for the, for the good of, of what its role is. But um, but they will. And if you only joined the Air Force today, you probably still think the perks are brilliant. But when you have been there before and you look back to, as my predecessors before me would have, I joined up when um, two people off my PTI course ended up going to Germany. And they were the last two postings in Germany before we closed the units or the RAF units out there. You know, 10 years prior to me, there was postings all over the world that were fantastic places to go where, where the, and they thought our postings were limited and, and restricted compared to theirs. So that's evolution, that's changed. Every generation thinks it's better or worse than the one before. But um, but yeah, it was it was a fantastically supportive place. And of course, when you, if you'd been off for three days playing football, you weren't just off, you were 
given money to get food, you were given transport, you were given accommodation, everything you could have wanted was taken care of. And um, I remember you could even, if back in the days, showing my age here, if you needed to use a phone box for whatever reason, you could claim for that money back for making the phone call. It was, it was crazy. No, it sounds, uh, does sound great experience. So when you were doing like from like, the, the foreign postings that you had, and what was that like? Where were you and like what were you staying? Like was there a big group of people there? Was it like uh, just being like on tour? Literally. Yeah, yeah. When you, So when, if you were posted overseas, if you were based permanently overseas, then um, often those postings were just like being in the UK, but somewhere else. Um, certainly places like Cyprus and some of those, you know, there's a couple in Italy that, you know, if you stepped off, if you didn't step off base, you wouldn't know you were, you were in a non-UK country. Um, if you were to do obviously an operational tour, Iraq, Afghan, the Falklands, those type of places, then the life was a little bit different. Um, everything was much more temporary for obvious reasons um, and a little bit harder, you know, the, the perks of everything else were obviously not there. That wasn't the role you were there for. But, um, but with some of the permanent ones or an extended, so the Falklands, for example, it's an operational tour, but we've been permanently based down there for 30 years. So when you get there, it's a well-established, well-oiled machine and you just form part of that for, you become a steward of that for a couple of months and, and then you move on and someone else does. But um, it all depends where you go and why you go there of how good or bad it is. Yeah, no, I can imagine. So when you decide you, you've you've left the, the military then and that what's, what, what was like your vision for, for what you wanted to do then? Yeah, good question. I, and I think I always say this to therapists who are, um, nervous of making the move themselves. I didn't know, to be honest. That that was, that, you know, I'd love to say, oh, well, I was going to do this in two years and this in five years. I had no idea. All, all I knew was the type of patient I wanted to work with, the type of way I wanted my life to be, and I didn't know what that final picture would look like, or more importantly, how I would get there. So I certainly um, went on a wing and a prayer for a while, fell into things. I remember um, I left the military. I just finished my physio degree and my wife, who's ex-military, she was still in the military. So we moved to just outside Windsor because that was her final posting. So location-wise, geography-wise, I had no say in where I was going to end up. And um, we got there and I thought, oh, I just need a job. I need some job to gain some experience, to work in the NHS or, or whatever. And there was a outpatients community hospital which was literally a mile from our front door it was the only hospital set up in the whole of Berkshire that run how I would imagine a traditional physio department being it wasn't in an in a in a big site hospital it was very very casual outpatients coming in and out for for nine to five appointments and they would just happen to have a job going at the time I was looking so so I think I was I was qualified and out of work for probably 10 days and just fell into this role. Within within a year, I'd managed to get promoted in that role as well, which again normally would have meant a move. But I was just lucky that it landed there. Looked for a bit of part-time private work, and some of the therapists there were working in private roles. They managed to get me a job somewhere else. Um, I think the, the things that I, I think because I'm, older when I did mine. I was mid-30s when I when I did my physio. 
the advantage it gave me was I was quite focused on where I wanted to end up. I was quite open of how I'd get there, but I was quite closed on what my end goal was. It meant that I did shut off certain avenues like rotational physio roles, doing that traditional journey of learning what you want to do by sometimes finding out what you don't want to do. I almost knew exactly what I wanted to do. I effectively wanted to find a way to do my military role, but as a physio, not as a therapist. And, and how can I quickly get myself back into that one? Um, again, we moved back to Wales. I was building my business up a little bit. Um, I, I need a job. There's a, there's a local clinic 20 miles away, predominantly working with uh, insurance work or local rugby players. Not my bag, both of them. But again, perfect. Here's a job, pays the bills, gives me a bit more experience. Right, cool. Can I drop some hours with you and do a day of my own as, as the endurance physio? Yeah, brilliant. He could have quite easily gone, no, dickhead, you're working for me now. That's it sort of thing. No, Mike, drop a day if you want. Had a really honest chat that, look, 18 months from now, Ben, I probably want to go on my own. Can I drop another day if it's going? Yeah, brilliant. Drop another day. And I just phased myself out of this job with brilliant support from him. And we stayed in touch and kept friends to this day because I'll never and ever not appreciate how cool he was for me moving forward sort of thing. But um, but it was very organic. And I think that's what I'd always sort of say to a lot of people, you know, that if you're waiting for the perfect plan to get your business growing, it's probably never going to happen. And again, if you've got this perfect plan and that plan doesn't grow how you want it to, you've seen so many therapists who had plans two years ago. And then COVID came and derailed a lot. And I know some of them who aren't even in therapy anymore because they've had to go back and revert to other jobs and industries. So um, I'm a big, you know, if you've got a goal, just start it, just go for it. And, and it'll get where you want it to, even if it's not on the path you want. So, um, so there is a lot of, I guess, self-manufactured luck, if that makes sense. You know, you have to be proactive. You have to make the moves. You have to do things yourself. But often you find, I think, is it Gary Player that always said, the more I practice, the luckier I got or something like that. So I think you know, the more proactive you are as a therapist with stuff, probably find you a little bit more lucky with, with opportunity knocking as well. Yeah, no, I love that quote. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely a good one. And that's, yeah, I think it's interesting that you were going back as a mature student doing the, the physio masters. How did you find it with your background from, from the experience and the um, the academic that you'd come from into that? Is that like a, an easy transition? Um, yes and no. So, so I found the studying and everything easy-ish, easy enough, based purely on the fact that, um, like I said earlier, I'd have been a terrible student at 18. Me, I loved my partying and my drinking and my socialising way too much to have dedicated myself to work. And I know I'd have had that traditional journey of panicking for exams, cramming last minute work, not getting the grades you could have, blah, blah, blah. So going back as a mature student, lots of people were going, I don't know how you do this. You're married. You've got, I had one son at the time. You're running your own business whilst you're studying. And but actually, I was at that point in life where I could just manage my time. I was good at juggling my stuff. I realized what my priorities were. And I always realized as well what the whole big picture was. I remember going for my interview and being asked outright. Um, I've been told before I go, if they, if they listen to your background and they say, um, do you only want to go into MSK or sport? Say no. 
And I'd had this big thing planned of, well, that's where I'll probably end up, but I'm open-minded about going down other routes. And, and I ended up having a really nice conversation, really nice interview with someone who was probably about my age as well. So felt a little bit sort of um, more open. And he just threw that fastball in right at the end. What's your plan then? Are you going to, um, do you only want to go MSK? Are you interested in the other topics? And having that two-second conversation with yourself, it felt like a minute. And I just made a judgment call of being honest. And I went, yeah, I do, I think. I said, ultimately, I do. I'm not, I'm not going to not commit myself to the placements and the other areas. I know they could make me a better therapist. But and on art, yeah, my ultimate goal is to, is to basically get the physio tech and go back to the life I was in before. And he went, yeah, cool. Everybody you will come across will understand that. They'll realize that. Just play the game. Just go on your placements, show interest, be committed, be dedicated. You're probably going to have some educators that are a bit younger than you, don't know how to handle you. Uh, you're a confident, outgoing guy, so they'll probably feel a bit threatened and they might be a little bit judgmental, critical of you. Play the game. And um, and before I started, I thought, I'm going to struggle with this. I'm going to struggle to, you know, I've been in sort of middle management in the career I was in before. I'm a bit older. I do feel I, I know what I'm on about a little bit in life as well as, as work. Um, bite your tongue, shut up, play the game. But to be honest, it was fantastic. I studied in London, um, commuted in and out of London every day, loved the London life, was able to go to some, you know, I did my peds in Great Ormond Street, for example. So if I couldn't find my way through that in a nice way, I'd have never, never enjoyed it. I did my neuro one in Queen Square in the National Neurology Hospital, was watching brain surgery, for God's sake, on my third day. Um, and I actually really threw myself into it and went, okay, the probability is this will be the only exposure I ever get to this area of physio. I'm probably never going to want to work in the community. I'm never going to work in respiratory. I'm never going to work in intensive care. But I've been given this gift of an opportunity to expose myself to them for a short period of time. Um, and I really did enjoy them, if I'm honest. And, and, and I, there's never, I'm not, saying that to, to play the game or anything. I literally went there, did them, enjoyed them, was glad to leave a lot of them and know, right, that's that done. And since then, you go back and you go, right, yeah, do you know what? I can hold conversations with people who are specialists in those areas based on that little bit of experience I had. It's not an in-depth experience or, or understanding that I'd claim to have, but it was fun and I dipped my toe enough to know it. Um, there, I was lucky in some ways there was about half a dozen of us that were a bit older on the course. There's three or four of us that were all over 30 and we formed that little group of, you know, the elderly statesmen who weren't interested in the pre-drinks and the nightclubs that a lot of the younger guys were doing. It was a pre-reg masters, so everyone had done a degree. So everyone was minimum 23, 24-ish age-wise. So it wasn't a bunch of kids. Um, but I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was good. And, and again, I'd say it was it was mainly down to being able to manage my time. When I had a piece of work to do, I knew how much to give it, when to do it, because I wanted to ring fence the family time, wanted to ring fence my own business time. Um, and it was good. And I know it was plenty. Even people on my course didn't share that experience. Lots of people thought about throwing the towel in because they didn't enjoy it. So, um, so I wouldn't want to wear rose-tinted glasses. So anyone thinking of doing that sort of route is going, oh, brilliant, that'll be a, a breeze. Um, but personally, I found it quite enjoyable. Mm. I mean, we were talking before we started, which I thought was a really good point about 
you were saying that you were interested in people that would maybe coming at it from a second career uh, for the physio world. I mean, do you want to talk about that? Because I think you were talking about maybe someone from recruitment. Because again, with from having done these and just from me interacting, I, I do find it fascinating when people do that. And even with the people that work with me here, it's people always bring something, no matter if it's completely random. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the flaws, there's lots of things wrong with our industry. And one of the things that's always wrong is this attitude we have that people's skill set and ability to help people is based on how long you've been a therapist. And I'm always a big fan of just saying, you know, I know I've worked with therapists who've been graduated a year, but have brought 10 years of experience to that one year. And likewise, I've worked with people who've been graduated for 10 years. You think they'd only been graduated a year based on how they've not evolved and kicked forward. And not long ago, I left a role with um, SIF Health. Now they used to be Sports Injury Fix. And part of that role was, was mentoring therapists. And you'd come across these newly qualified or student therapists that often undervalued themselves or underconfident. Oh, I'm no good. I've only been doing it six months. This guy's been doing it 10 years, blah, blah, blah. And when you got to know these people, you'd find out that their background was they were mums, they were dads, they'd been in HR recruitment, they'd been working in finance, they'd been working in whatever career they come from. And they often missed the point or missed the value of the experience they had in other industries and life and how that came into our business. One of them had come from a recruitment background, had been pretty senior in that career. And her interpersonal skills, her communication skills, her, her just life admin was just so on point that you know how she spoke to patients just trampled over people who'd been graduated a lot longer than her, not necessarily older than her, but were, were just people that were um, lacking the diversity in life that she had to come into this one. There's another guy I worked with who, he had a PhD and he was a former teacher who'd spent a lot of time in a sort of education research career. So, so learning how we learn and helping teachers understand how people learn. Within a year or so of him just being a newly qualified soft tissue therapist, listening to him, breaking down some explanations to some of these patients he blew senior therapists out the water because he just knew how to break things down simply and communicate with people so um so if you are coming or thinking even of coming at it from a, a second career it's never too late and it's not a line in the sand where you go well that was that life now i'm in this life it's like well what what is it about you because we are a most of us, you know, people by people, and most of us, our business is us, and we work with people. So whether you're someone who works online with patients, in person, however your business runs, it's pretty much those skills that you've had in life and in other careers that translate to this, the, the technical bits. We all know how to develop them. We all know how to do them. We've all, most of us have done the same sort of courses to build up the technical skills. But um, But if you can communicate with people better and probably streets ahead of everyone else mm, yeah i think that's a message that comes across a lot with the people working with professional athletes that's what i know grant downey said it several other people have said it as well is and you can see it with some of the way that the, the people do it was like football that i've been in a lot and you can just see that, that that is such a key component isn't it getting people to buy into you but then that's the case for anything isn't it private clinics nhs any well any job yeah but then that gets watered down and, and misconstrued when people go, 
oh, so you give the patients whatever they want? No. We talk like human beings. We collaborate, genuinely collaborate on what we're trying to do. Um, you know, I think um, I, I don't, the way my diary works these days, the days I'm clinical, I tend to see a lot as a sort of second opinion type of thing. I don't often see too many people that have uh, never seen a therapist before me. And, you know, they'll come in and they'll go, um, so when do you want to see me next? And I'll be, well, when do you want to come back next? And they literally go, well, what do you mean? I said, well, it's not up to me to tell you when to come back. If you've just come back from an ACL reconstruction and I need to see you at six weeks to do some objective measures or whatever, fine, I'll guide you in that role. But if I'm just helping you continue to train, continue to race or get back training and racing, then, you know, when would you like to come back? I'll tell you if I think it's too soon or too long. You know, well, what about if my pain comes back past a certain level? Yeah, cool. You know where I am, get in touch with me. And, um, and that's just communication. That's nothing to do with skill set. And it's certainly not um, giving the athlete whatever they want. You know, here's, here's three treatment approaches. This is the pros of this one. This is the cons of that one, which, you know, I'm happy for you to, as long as we're doing X, if you want to try Y, Z, or background to A, it's up to you to coexist with it. What would you like? Oh, well, I've done X before. Can we try Y? Yeah, of course. Remember, these are what we think about it. X is the foundation we need to be. Oh, brilliant. That's how you work with top-level athletes. And, you know, I, I now, I've, I've been fortunately in my endurance role to spend a lot of time working with elites, pros, some celebrities, that type of, of patient. You know, I spent a long term where my sort of, in inverted commas, lowest athlete would be like an international age group athlete. But I spend a, most of my time now working with recreational athletes, new athletes, and they often are like, oh, you probably don't want to see me, do you? Because you used to working with those guys. And say, well, how I work with you will be exactly the same as I work with them. I might bring in an, a, a professional athlete approach to a non-professional athlete. You could argue that. But I'm going to treat you in exactly the same way I treat them. Um, and in fact, because you don't have the external pressures of funding, uh, competition, uh, sponsorship, all of those sort of things, you're probably going to be far more honest and easier for me to work with. Some of those are really hard work athletes, some of the, some of the elite guys. They're really tough to work with sometimes. Mm. Um, oh, right, cool. Oh, I, I, didn't th you know, I didn't think you'd want to work with me. I want to work with anyone. And actually, I want to work with the ones who I'm probably going to be able to help more. And that's normally you guys who've, who don't have an understanding of, of what the science says or can't understand what the science says or have very limited time. So you can't have the kitchen sink thrown at you. You need to know what to prioritize and when. Brilliant. I'll try and help you understand that. And some of that will be just talk. Most of that will probably just be talking and collaborating and communicating with you. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly the way to do it. And it's like that even, but again, whether it's in physio or not in physio, it's like in when we're doing our targets, what we're doing, it's definitely not me saying, right, there's your number, hit that. It's like, you know, what do you think? And, and trying to be collaborative on it. And like when I'm getting treated by a guy that used to work with us actually, and he's the same, like with me, he's just like, right, when do you want to come back in? similar to what you're saying, yeah, this would be good, I'd recommend this, but 
if you want to come in earlier, no problem, we can do this and this. And I honestly think it's a great way of getting people buy-in, doesn't it, straight away, that they're actually having to think about it themselves in terms of what they're doing. Um, so, no, I love that. And I think it's great for any walk of life. Um, but going into like the endurance side for you then, so where did your like initial love or uh, sort of aptitude for that come from? Mm, I, think, I, th- I think I'd had it longer than I realised when I realised. So when I go back to those football days, so I was a footballer in the 90s, and football was a different game then. I mean, I wouldn't have lasted two minutes in, in an academy today with the, the technical level of these guys. And after the football thing died, and I realised that probably reached my ceiling ability-wise, when I self-reflected back of um, why did I do okay at football, in reality, it was my fitness. I was the one who could keep going or kick in when a lot of people got tired. And I'd pretty much done that because, you know, to be fit as a footballer in the 90s, you run. You run, run, run. There was no strength conditioning. There was no anything else. It was running. You just run. And um, the club the club I played for, one of our coaches was an ex-pro. So what did he do pre-season? Ran us into the ground. And I was always up the front of it. So I started realising after my football days, I quite enjoy this fitness thing. Um that was the time running was big. So I got into running. I did a couple of mar- health and safety didn't exist either. So I think I did my first marathon at 18, which, uh, you know, you probably wouldn't even be allowed in these days. But um, all of a sudden then it was like, right, I'm loving this running. Military life was based on a lot of running, a lot of cross country walking and hill walking and that sort of stuff. Triathlon came along. It just felt like the natural transition. Let's try this out. Threw myself into that for, for many years. And I just always enjoyed doing the stuff everyone else thought was crazy. And I didn't do that out of ego or um, to show off with it or anything. I just thought, oh, if you think you can't do that, I'm going to do that then. You know, I remember starting, I joined the triathlon club, this mythical Ironman back in the late 90s of, you know, only the crazy people do that. I just remember going, cool, I want to do that then did an Ironman. Well, there's this thing called a double Ironman where you do two back-to-back. I, oh, right, cool, I'll have a go at that then. I found, I, through Headley Court then, I, um, I'd, I'd had enough for a little bit of, of triathlon. I, I was asked to lead um, an open water swimming team of injured servicemen. It was a team building, sort of soul-searching, character building, rediscover yourself type um, event. And again, started going along i'd done some open water swimming but only ever wetsuit stuff um all of these fantastically talented swimmers who were couldn't live with them for five minutes in the pool the freezing cold water that's really choppy they don't last long in this but i'm quite enjoying this let's let's see where this leads to oh you know people swim the channel that's a bit nuts only the crazy people do that and i'm thinking you're way better swimmers than me and you're scared of that you don't want to know that i think i'll give that a go and whether it's been swimming, triathlon, uh, cycling, or ultra runs now is my big thing these days. It's always been that sort of journey more than the goal, if, I, if I'm honest. That six-month journey of discovery to get to the start line is the thing that motivates me more than the race at the end. That's just the bonus. Um, the process of endurance sports I really, really enjoy. Um, now I'm juggling the whole, how do I make this coexist with a family? Took my foot off the gas for a long time. There was, I just, it just couldn't. I couldn't make it. Or I couldn't go at the level I used to go. Um, I think my my peak in the military when they were letting me train as much as I wanted 
was probably training 25 hours a week. You know, I'm lucky. I'm lucky if I can squeeze five in now, to be honest, most weeks. So there's that whole, how do I adapt this? How do I evolve it? Which again has, has rolled over into um, my clinical work as well, because now I'm having to work, you know, how do I evolve and become a different therapist now compared to how I would have been when I was younger and I had more time and I could see more people and things like that. So, um, so, so that's where it all came from. That's where it continues to be. I'm very much now in a, how good can I be when I'm old as an endurance athlete? Everyone tends to fall off and just go, can't do that anymore. Well, what could I do now at this age? So, um, so that's where it came from. It still is the thing that, that lights my sort of fire every day when I think about training is, you know, how far, how, how long, how hard can you go? Thankfully, I'm lucky that the, the world of endurance sports now seems to be coming up with crazier and crazier and crazier challenges, which I don't think is a good thing all the time. I think there's a lot of social media-led bad ideas that are out there in the world. But, um, but it does mean there's opportunities and races and events that weren't there before. But you go, oh, OK, that's something that flicks my switch. Let's, let's see if that can work. Mm. But, um, but yeah, it all, all, all stem, everything stems back to football. Everything ultimately stems back to teenage years as a footballer. So do you think like with these things, because again, like I've classic New Year's resolution, right, I'm going to do some running and I hate running. And it's like, like and John Rogers is a good friend of mine. So I see him still winning the park runs now in in Manchester. Um, but like, I just don't like it. But that's because I'm not very good at it. So you then do less of it, whereas you were good at it. So therefore, you probably enjoy doing it and you carry on doing more so you get better. So it's one of those kind of vicious circles. But do you think that's that's why you liked it because you were good at it, or do you think you just you did like the process of it? No, I think I think um, me, me being good at it was a lot again of luck and timing. You know, I was lucky enough to get a, a Great Britain age group vest at Ironman level. I wouldn't get near that today. You look at the athletes that are out there today. You've been I, I'm the classic um, second sport triathlete, so you leave your team sport behind and you dabble at this thing in your late 20s, early 30s. I did okay for my my time and, and my period I was I was racing, but um, but today I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be able to live anywhere near the top guys. So a bit of luck there. So I, I think in the big picture of things, uh, when you look at the history books, it wasn't that good, did it? It was okay, um, but it was almost the... I'm not that good, I want to be better, was almost the driving force to get better. I've worked with and coached and treated athletes that are a thousand times better athletes than me. What they didn't have was maybe my psychology of, of being an athlete. They didn't have the commitment, you know. I, I very, very, very rarely have ever trained with clubs or groups. I'm a lone wolf, never needed them. I've always felt, no, I can do myself. I can, I can motivate myself to do the hard sessions. I don't need that group support motivate myself to do the long sessions um so, so for me my strength was always never give in never quit never stop going um and and even on my race days all my successful races were in extreme climates the cold the rain the sun the heat the wind when it got horrible for better athletes and they didn't like it i just felt and i think it's that military thing as well i just felt that little corner of my lip going up a bit going here we go here we go. I'm loving this. It's this is tough. This is hard. People don't like it. That's why I'm going to enjoy it. Um, and you do, you know, again with everything, it's it, practice gets you better. 
you know, it may not make you perfect, but um, but I had the will to always commit myself to my training, and I had the will to know that I'll get better if I keep doing it, um, which applies to you know, whatever. So this morning I was trying to do some schoolwork with my kids, and again it was to them. I don't care if you get all of these right; just want you to commit and try your hardest and do the best you can do with it, and um, and then everything else falls into place. Mm, no, I think the psychology of it is fascinating because it's. I'm basically a thing that's the opposite of you on a load of these things. And like I, you know, you need the team side of it. But it's it's really interesting that like like you say, you reveled in those really tough situations, which I think yeah, people do sink or swim in those things. But yeah, no, it's 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 really did you get motivation, do you think, from seeing other people struggling, not in a negative way, but just thinking, actually I can deal with this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it was a race that always sticks in my head because it was a it was the strangest race ever. It was down on Chichester Way, sort of early 2000s. And it was a spring Olympic distance triathlon. So it's a sort of two-hour race. Um, and we started this swim in glorious March, April time sunshine. Beautiful day. Halfway around the bike, out of nowhere, we had the heaviest downpour of snow and hail that you've ever seen. I've got a picture of me coming out of the pool and a picture of me on my bike. You wouldn't even think it's the same season. They've alone the same day. And it, was, it wasn't nice. It wasn't that I enjoyed it. But I just saw everyone around me just fall apart. It was like, this is cold. This is horrible. My fingertips are going numb. I can't keep up the speed I'm trying to keep up. And they just weren't able to adjust what their goals were or what their, their aim was, you know. Um, People, they, they, halfway through the race, they decided to stop the bike. It wasn't safe. They were making people who were starting later than us just go into the run. That was the then people on the bike were hearing this and starting to get annoyed and pissed off about something that was completely out of their control. Um, and I could physically then see myself pulling these people back. So absolutely, I doubled down then. I went, right, you guys are struggling here. I'm going for this. I'm going for it because ultimately this is psychology. Nothing has changed in the last 10 minutes, you know, and, and we're only out here for another 45 minutes. So the cold's not really a threat. And if you rack your bike, you're going to be fine on the run. And I think I pulled back maybe 10 places on the bike and then another three or four on the back to, to finish in the top two. Um, if that weather hadn't kicked in and those people hadn't shown me that little chink in their armor, I probably would have finished top 20. Mm. But um, but I was able exactly that to, to um, manipulate other people's misfortune almost to, to be able to go right cool this is this is good this is me and and, and again it's that whole when I think it's inherent in you anyway whether you are or you aren't that way but when you've spent six months in Afghanistan having to just suck it up and live whatever way you can live for those six months or had a you know a, a bag on your back that you've been one hour notice you've got to move somewhere else and you don't know when your next meal or sleep's coming and I'm making that sound more dramatic than it often is but um, but you have that ability to just go okay cool it's just not a good time it's not ideal but I'll just you know it's not going to last forever and we'll just make the best of it and that's where that mentality psychology kicks in um, and I, I spot it all the time now in my patients and athletes, whether it's a good or a bad way, I see it. I can almost tell in 10 minutes, am I going to really get on and work well with you? Or are you going to be someone that's going to be quite tough to help? 
and um, and it's almost right every time. Just just uh -huh. by, I think I often say this that as much as I've changed careers, as variations on a theme, if I was twenty years younger, or if I had an ability to go back twenty years, knowing what I know now, I think I'd take myself off into that sports psychology world. Mm -hmm. um, I've got I've got a really good friend who's a, who's a professor of sports psychology, and we have some chats that it really sparks me up. I'm like, I really wish I'd gone down down that avenue and, and really double down because when you get to a certain level or, or when you're whatever level you compete at, if you compare yourself to your peers, not necessarily the next level up talent wise, it's nearly always psychology that makes a difference. You know, there's 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 a huge difference between an Olympian and a recreational athlete. And it doesn't matter what the psychology is of either of those athletes, the, the best athletes psychologically at recreation level is never getting anywhere near the worst psychologically prepared athlete at elite. But whether you're talking elite against elite, pro against pro, amateur versus amateur, it's often psychology that's the difference in training, rehab and performance that will tell those apart. So, um, and it's one of the few things I think that we can manipulate in life. You know, we've got a physiological ceiling that we can't really exceed. I can get to my fighting weight and my fighting fitness, and that's pretty much me. The only level I can kick on from there is to unlock something psychologically that allows me to suffer more or dig in deeper or, or whatever it is. I need to, you know, just train harder, whatever. Um, and if I can't do that, then often that's, that's the difference between between those who beat me and those who don't. Mm, yeah, no, definitely. That more and more that you kind of see at the moment, just psychology is massive, again, in not just in sport, but in, in everything. Um, so how did you start to marry up like your, you, you, you own doing your own endurance, but then moving that into working with some of the top athletes from a physio perspective? Yeah, so again, a bit of luck and a bit of uh, proactivity, you know, be, being around some of these places and what, what I've always looked back on, and this is this fascinates me, I've the number of ex-military colleagues who've left as well, that I turn around now and look where they've landed up in some fantastic roles. They've done really well for themselves. And that's unlocked so many more doors for me. Like, I want to work with British Triathlon. Let's see who's on there. Oh, my God, there's such and such who I worked with before quick phone call, email to them, you know, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Um, what I've never been is is someone who forces myself on people. So a lot, a lot of the work I could, you know, I'm sure my accountant would probably tell me I should have done it more. Um, I've been very much take a back seat, let people come to me. Um, and, and thankfully, the last few years, which I probably put down to social media exposure more than anything else, that's really started to come into fruition. Lots of people now going, Mike, can I work with you? Can you work with this squad? Would you be interested in, in helping out with these guys or girls? Um, but it wasn't always like that. So it was a little bit of, you know, um, offering not, not free services per se, but, you know, would you like me to come to your track session on Wednesday night and chat about X or Y? Oh, that'd be brilliant, Mike. Thanks. You know, be much appreciated. At the end of it, then, you know, we were chatting at the start that, you know, never being salesy and pushy with stuff give them value in something else and hope that they see it for something else later on so you know there was never a here's my business card come and see me or you know it's like hey, here's a bit of information i just wanted to pass on to you hope it helps good luck for your seasons whatever and then you know who is that guy who came and chatted to us about footwear for running 
I want to chat to him. I've got some calf problems. Oh, I was that Mike guy. Let's go and see him. So, so a lot of it has been about being, and it's hard not to do that sometimes. And you manage to get that opportunity and platform to to sell yourself. To not sell yourself sometimes is is, is tough. But um, but it was very much a case of probably 50-50 of me going to contacts and people who weren't contacts at the time and, and, and offering to try and immerse myself in their setups, coupled with those people who knew I was a therapist, knew I was an athlete, and, and they married that up in their own minds of, well, what I really want is someone who understands what I'm going through. I think I got lucky from... from um, lots of therapists who probably didn't know how to work with endurance athletes. I didn't understand the particulars of the sport, didn't understand the nuances of endurance athletes. So they were very much, you know, don't do this, do this. And it wasn't what the athletes wanted to or needed to hear. So it would be, oh, I, who, who, who fits the bill of understanding what's going on? And then there's the smart stuff of, you know, I remember um, probably spent my last two or three seasons of racing competitively racing in an endurance physio tri-suit, pulling up in my car that was branded and just being smart of, look, I'm here anyway, so I may as well advertise myself. Um, and it, it was pretty much, yeah, just a blend of both of those. Mm-hmm. And like, what are the more memorable experiences or things that you work with some of the highest level people? Are there any particular ones that stand out, experiences or people? Yeah, I just I just always, um, as I say now, I do get much more reward now from helping people at a lower level achieve the little things that they're looking for, um, which are still big goals to them. But but for for the bigger picture, they often don't see how rewarding their goals are. Well, I always enjoyed that because I was always a sort of um, with the elites. It was very much like freelance or temporary type stuff. What I never wanted to do was pin my badge to a team or a club or a, or a tri-camp that was like, well, I can't do anything else because I'm stuck with these. Um, I know that's what a lot of people do and they loved it, but I spent a lot of time freelancing alongside national physios and stuff. So we've got an athlete, he's trying to get to X games. We're struggling a bit with him. Can you help him out a couple of times a week or whatever it is, or just be this overarching sort of seer of this couple of, um, couple of the big sort of uh, celebrity charity events, comic relief, sport relief, those type of things. I've had inputs with a lot of those, which was rewarding because most of those aren't athletes, to be honest, and you're juggling their travel commitments and their work commitments and everything. But, um, but I think the ones that I've always enjoyed the most were overseas training camps, if I'm honest. They, I always loved being able, and again, maybe it's military and enjoying being away for a bit or whatever, but I had this little sweet spot of about five, six years where probably 10 times a year for a fortnight, three weeks, I would just join a club, you know, there wasn't the professional setup there is today where people had full-time therapists or affiliated therapists. So it would very much be like, Mike, we're taking 20 athletes to wherever, uh, we're going to give them 20 hours of training for three weeks. We need a therapist on site. Can you come? And I always enjoyed those because the expectation they wanted compared to the reality you give them often didn't marry up. We just need you around. We need you to be there in case someone, well, you know, I could be running these sort of pre-ab sessions. You know, I can give you lectures and talks around this. You know, I could be helping you. Or could you? Didn't realize you could do all that. Well, 
I, I'm here to support you for three weeks. Part of the reason I always enjoyed them was one, I enjoyed the camps themselves as an athlete in the past. But um, I always felt at that point, up to that point in my life, I always felt quite a selfish person. I always wanted to do what I wanted to do first. And I found them really liberating in putting others first before me. Because when you're there in that capacity, in any sport, in any form, when you're supporting a team in that environment, then you're the last person you should think of. In fact, therapists should probably think of themselves a little bit more than they do. Often we they come back super fit and we come back bloody unhealthy and tired and and needing a, needing a recharge ourselves. But um, but I really enjoyed that that journey of discovery of going okay, you know, my athletic days they're not behind me, but they're not the priority for me right now. Helping others with my experiences is is the thing that I'm really enjoying now. And um, and I would say it was it was on and off a plane for so many times and so many years just jetting around doing that sort of stuff never to competition that was what i liked about it i was never in the the cauldron of it's you know i've had friends who just come back from tokyo for example you know bloody nightmare place to be in some ways because of the pressures around this is everything for four years and this is the pressure cooker of it these were very much a early season pre-season camp or a mid-season booster camp and um, and they were fun times, fun times. But I also think probably my one of my most rewarding cohorts ever were those battlefield injured amputees from Headley Court, who it was so much more than just the event for them. It was learning social skills. It was getting their self confidence back. It was learning that their lives could move forward in different ways. And what to me was, oh, we're just going swimming for a week came back from some of those, you know, we'd have tearful conversations of what this camp had done for some of these people, not not because of me or anything else, but because of the, the whole situation and what was put in place for them. And, um, and I don't think there's ever been more rewarding population of people than those people in those camps. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this, this next question, or the last question I'll ask as well, is kind of linked into that. But who... Who are the people um, or person that has had a really influential pathway? One of the things that you mentioned earlier on, which I thought was great, the story about the physio that you worked for and was really flexible in letting you go off, which I think is is, is a great way. But is there anyone else who's had a big impact on you? Yeah, it's been. In, this is interesting. So I, I, I probably in my younger days had the traditional role models, the gurus that you thought were just these guys are just next level therapists or trainers or coaches or whatever. And everything you try to do for a period of time and around them is almost to replicate them, mirror them, just imitate them. And it's funny now because if you'd asked me this maybe 10 years ago, I'd have listed off a couple of names. Those same people now, I look back and think, you weren't half as good as I thought you were. Now I know more. Now I know more. I look back and think you were... There was lots of things about you that I probably didn't want or shouldn't have wanted to copy. Um, there was one. There was one guy called Russ in my military career who um, he became a real strong influencer for me based on his attitude and the way that he tried to evolve himself. So it wasn't so much a skill set. It wasn't so much his career or whatever he did. He just had this un earring unwavering ability to be better 
whether it was through learning. He was the sort of guy that would go to bed with a dictionary next to his book and every night would learn one new word just to have a better vocabulary. He was that sort of guy. Quite exhausting in some ways. A guy that could be really draining of a, a packet in rust, just give us a day off sort of thing. But he he was never happy with himself or or his his level. It was and and he and I I developed this from him. But it was this this half of it was a desire to be better, half of it was a fear that was chasing him of not being as good as anyone else or falling behind the drag curve or letting people down because he wasn't as good as he could be. So there was that mix of drive and fear, and I've certainly picked that up off him. Um, Quite cheesily, if I'm honest, in the last 10 years, my biggest role models are my kids. Um, in a way of, I want to be the best role model for them, and therefore I'm going to do all the things myself that I preach to them. Do the things I want to do. Don't do things I don't want to. Be honest with people. Work my butt off to try and be the best I can, but not have false ambitions of where that could take me. Um, and, and I found them a real inspiration to be to to be better, to be able for them to look back when they're older and go, oh, dad used to say all these things, but he didn't really back it up himself, did he? Um, so, so it is very much now, uh, before it was the people I aspired to be like, and now it's very much the people I want to inspire to be to be more like me when, I, when I'm dead and gone. Yeah, no, that's interesting, actually. I've not had that sort of analysis, but it does make sense, doesn't it? You kind of switch from, right, I've got to be like that, to actually, you've got your own way of doing things, and, yeah, you want that to be inspirational. I just don't want to be a hypocrite. When they're teenagers, early 20s, and I'm trying to give them advice on stuff, what I don't want to be, don't want to be that guy for them to go, yeah, that's not what you did, Dad, is it? You know, well, you're telling me to do this. You never showed any evidence of that. Whereas, you know, yeah, look, Dad might not have achieved X, Y, or Z, but I bloody well tried hard to get there. Mm. And, and, and when I'm telling you to graft and work hard, you saw the nights I was doing X and Y in, in the office at home, or, or you saw that I tried something and it didn't work, and then I tried something else. Um, you know, I, I, as I say, I stepped away from my role with, with CIF Health uh, previous to Christmas because I just it was something that two years ago was something I was really passionate about and thought was going to be really good to go forward with. And I had a, a real learning journey, which was fantastic, wouldn't change it for the world. But four or five months ago, realized I'm not happy here. This isn't where I want to be. This isn't the thing I want to be doing. I need to step away. And it's been it's been a tricky couple of months with Christmas and COVID and stuff to get, get back up and running in a different way. But I can sleep easy that when the kids go, Dad, that thing I was trying, I really thought I wanted to do. I didn't want to do, I don't want to do that anymore. What should I do? And I can go, well, remember that time when dad made that decision to do this instead of this? It's not that you made a wrong decision. You did it. You tried it. It didn't work. Now you're going to do something else. Mm -hmm. But now give that 100%. Don't dwell on what did or didn't happen. Move forward in the way you want to. Oh, yeah, I remember that, dad. Yeah. So, so it's very much an inspirational thing for me now, whereas previous, and I guess most people would have a similar outlook. In my younger days, it was very aspirational to be like some of those people that I thought were maybe better than they actually were um and now it's very much inspirational but what i do find now as i get older the people that i aspire to be like are much more diverse they're not necessarily therapists or people in our industry i'll read a book about someone or i'll see something online or or i'll just come across someone 
who's in a completely different walk of life and, and, and I'll find inspiration from a lot of things I see in other areas now and go, well, yeah, that relates to me now as well. They're just people and, and I can be like that too. Mm. Have you got any books of people outside of your industry that you'd recommend? I'm always up for a good, good sort of yeah, yeah. Just um, the, the two I just finished reading right now is um, Eleven Rings, which is Phil Jackson. I've was, got that actually. Yeah, I've not read it yet. Um, so being a '90s kid, I was hooked on the Chicago Bulls when Jordan and Scottie Pippen were around, um, but was a young teenager and didn't really understand the ins and outs of it. So um, so I've really enjoyed reading that because of that whole philosophy, leadership, sort of pig-headed, single-mindedness about something. And then the other one, which is just coincidentally um, US sports, but the dynasty, which is about the Patriots and their seven Super Bowl win- wins. Um, again, it, the process of building a, a franchise from relative obscurity to be in the absolute dominant team for 15 to 20 years in a sport that doesn't normally have a dominant team and how it was about the little steps one at a time they never went you know i'm a big fan of my a lot of the athletes i work with they'll come to me in like august i want to do a 100 mile run or i want to do an ironman in july and all they focus on is this end goal this 100 mile. how the hell am i going to run 100 miles and it can often shackle, often shackle them through the process because they don't think, well, let's run 10 miles. And when I can run 10 miles, I'll run 20 miles. And when I can run 20 miles, I'll run 30 miles. They don't break it down into those tangible bite-sized chunks. It's always this end goal that's like a weight at the end of, of, of the rope for them. And what this dynasty book does is it's really, really good at showing you how they knew they wanted to be the best. They knew they wanted more Super Bowls than anyone else. But if that would be the goal, they'd have never got there. So let's get the best player in this position and the best player in that position. Let's make the best pairings. After five years, we want to stay on top. Who can we bring in to replace him? Because although he's still got three or four years left, he ain't going to be around for the next five years. And it's all of that, you know, if you're thinking of business, how do I build my business in five years, 10 years, 20 years by the things I do now? But those things for 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time are irrelevant. It's focusing on what i got to do now and in the next 18 months is the key thing. So um, so they were brilliant books. Um, that a lot of the books you'll see see on the shelf behind me, I tend to buy them. And then I might not read them for bloody two years. They just sit on my shelf like I've got what well, they look all just unordered. But there's one shed, one strip there, which is to read books. And um, and luckily through Christmas and just before Christmas, it was a case of, right, I'm going to read these two now and um, and just go from there. But but again, books I probably wouldn't have thought of buying 10 years ago because mm, I'd have just well, thought. That's interesting. I've got an audible credit, so I'm actually going to get that Dynasty one. I'll, I'll do it and I'll let you know um, let you know how I got on with it. Yeah, yeah. But I'm actually doing another one. So the one I'm doing at the moment too, I'm doing the Reebok book, which is fascinating. And then if you've done that one before, um, he's called, is it Joe Joe Foster, I think, is, is the guy. Um, but then also one of my favourite ones, which is well, ironically as well to do with uh, running, is the, the Phil Knight one, um, Shoe Dog. Brilliant book, isn't it? Yeah, 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 brilliant. And again, great you know, anyone who's been in and around sport or exercise, Nike is this synonymous entity that we've all owned Nikes. We've all, you know, seen Nike everywhere. We never really listen to the story. You never really understand 
you know, there, there's one, I, I don't think it is a book. I'm not sure whether I heard it on a podcast or something, but is the sort of Amazon story with Jeff Bezos. And of course, now you just think of them being these billionaires who've got, you know, this power. Look back to how some of these businesses started, some of the problems there, some of those. I'm always fascinated when, and I think the first guy that ever interested me in this was old um, Branson with Virgin. How do you go from a market record shop to that? And I often think, although it's always a series of small things that, that escalate, there must have been some two or three times where there was one fork in the road that made that big difference. And um, and the one with Amazon, I think, and I might might be muddling up some of these details, but um, it was something like, because they started out as this online bookshop, and all of a sudden, online bookshops were falling off the face of the earth. They were crashing left, right, and center. And he just made that decision because he had these hedge fund friends who had a lot of money to help him. I'm buying all of them. And everyone was like, that's the worst move you can do. Everything's falling apart and you're buying them all. Ended up being like such a killer move for him moving forward. And again, I might have got some of those details wrong, but but um, but I remember listening to that going, yeah, there's those such pivotal moments where um, not quite make or break for a lot of people in our lives, in our industry, but they might be the thing that lights the touch paper or or keeps you on the same treadmill for the rest of your career. Mm, yeah, no, definitely. No, well, that's great. It's got a lot longer than ours. I could talk about these books all the time, though, so I'll, uh, I'll give you a shout afterwards. I've got a few other yeah. recommendations that I'd recommend. But, Mike, I really appreciate your time on this. Um, and, yeah, I'll, uh, I'm definitely going to come down and catch up with you in, in Cardiff when we're able to do so. Um, but, no, thank you for your time. There's been some great stories there. And, um, yeah, I appreciate it. My pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you very much. No problem. Right, have a good one. Cheers. Take care. Thanks.